I'm about to study the incorruptible, inerrant word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to his wisdom, and I rest my hopes on his grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in his promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can change what it says I can change as I trust in his grace and spirit. I covenant with God that I am ready to learn, I'm ready to grow, and I'm ready to change as I hide his word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ with the Lord of my life. All right, children, you're dismissed. And Pastor, you are welcome. <laughs> All right. As the children dismiss themselves to the, uh, their worship time and then Pastor Kelly's discipleship class as well. Before we actually begin the message this morning, let me just give you a quick reminder. We've been in a series called The Kingdom Generation. And what has led us to this study is that you may recall five messages back that uh, I preached a message on how we are understanding more and more the signs of the time. The Bible makes it clear we cannot know the day or the hour of uh, the Lord's appearing, but we can know the seasons, and we're supposed to know the seasons. And so it's very important for us to know that. And uh, one of the things that we discovered I taught, taught about in that first message is that because of some of the work that has happened in the recovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and translating those scrolls, we have been able to put back together the true sacred calendar of the, of the Hebrew people. And uh, remember, the Jewish calendar of today is corrupted. It was actually corrupted during the time of... Uh, the Maccabees, uh, Maccabeans, when they were under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they required them to uh, adopt the Greek calendar. And uh, later, even after the time of Christ, there were some rabbis who actually moved 164 years from the uh, BC calendar because they didn't like the fact that you could take Daniel 9 and prove that Jesus arrived at the right time, that he really was the Messiah. So they just corrupted the calendar so you couldn't do that. Well, there was a, a rabbi who was very upset by the fact that they did that, and he wrote something called the uh, Seder Olam, and the Seder Olam uh, basically corrected the calendar back and showed the corruptions they had made. And then the uh, Aseans, the, who called themselves the Sons of Light out at the Dead Sea, when we unearthed their scrolls, they had done the same kind of work and had come to the same conclusions, and that validated each other. We have discovered that many of the prophecies in the Old Testament that before didn't make sense now make sense to us. They predict out definite dates. For example, there is a prediction in the Old Testament in Daniel and Ezekiel which predicts the date of Israel's second coming to their land, May 14, uh, 1948. And there is a uh, one that predicted exactly the time they would get the Temple Mount back, June the 7th, 1967. And it happened to the day exactly as predicted by Daniel. And so it's, it's interesting that we can now unlock some of these prophecies. And that sacred calendar is important because God wants us to know the seasons. He wants us to know the time. Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, do what? Look up, your redemption is drawing near. So we're supposed to know the seasons. We just can't know the day or the hour. 
And so this is important, and we believe that the, the next, that what I taught in that message, don't have time to reteach it, that we're down to the last four to five generations, or decades, I should say, uh, before the end of this age and the beginning of the sabbatical age, the Sabbath age of the millennial reign of Christ. And so we need to raise up generations, our children, our grandchildren, and maybe even great-grandchildren, for some of you, that know what they believe, why they believe it, and are able to endure to the end and be saved. Because Jesus said only those who endure to the end will be saved. And so we're going to continue that study this morning. But before I begin, I'd like to introduce someone. My in-laws, Sam and Dolores Persley, have had a very special guest this week, Red Harvison, Dr. Red Harvison. Would you stand up? This is uh, one of Sam's oldest friends. They used to sing together and travel in a quartet together. And uh, Dr. Harvison is a great friend. And that, his, his daughter, Jackie, Jackie, stand up with him there. That's his daughter, Jackie, who drove him down. Red, I think, is what, 93? 93 and still going strong, I tell you. And Red, it's great to have you with us. And uh, he's been staying in our house, and we've been enjoying having them. So just, uh, that's, that's been a special time. I don't know how many years. I think it's about 18, 19 years since they've been together. And so this has been a great time for them to kind of reconnect. And so, uh, all right. So our, our message this morning has a kind of a, an interesting title. Um, and it may seem strange to you, but it just simply says grace, and then it has a symbol after it. This is a, and I've been, somebody was kidding me after the first service, because he said, you sure have been using a lot of math lately. And uh, <laughs> this is a mathematical symbol. I'm not a mathematician, but nonetheless, it is a mathematical symbol, and it's a symbol that means greater than whatever, this is greater than whatever follows. And that's exactly what it means. So let's talk, talk about this symbol for a moment. $10,000 is greater than a dollar, right? So that's what that symbol means. If you were to see that symbol, it would say 10,000 is greater than a dollar. Or, for example, a ton of gold is greater than an ounce of gold. You, it's good to know that, wouldn't it? If I offered you a choice between a ton of gold and an ounce of gold, wouldn't you want to know which one was more valuable? Well, this would tell you a ton of gold is greater than an ounce of gold. And so, obviously, the meaning of this symbol is greater than. So when we put it after the word grace, what we're saying is something very profound. Grace is greater than, and you can fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what. Why is that true? Well, what we're going to learn is that grace is not an it. Grace is a someone. What you and I do not deserve is Jesus Christ coming and in being incarnated and laying down his life for us and dying for our sins and rising again from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand and sending the Holy Spirit back to live inside of us. And that is grace personal, living inside of us. We don't deserve that. That's all grace. But it's not an it. It's a someone. That's what God gave us. He didn't give us an it. He gave us himself. And so, when we talk about grace is greater than, we need to understand that that means anything. And some of you think you believe that, and I really hope you do. But some of you don't believe that. 
because there are circumstances, there are issues, there are relationship frustrations that you have decided are just too big for God's grace. Well, they're not. And I'm here to remind you this morning. So, here's the point. Grace is greater than what do you need to put in the blank? That's a good question. What do you need to put in the blank? Because there are many thousands of different things that we could put in that blank. But I can promise you this, because grace is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and the power of his spirit, there is nothing that you can put in that blank that is greater than his grace. Period. Exclamation point. Okay? So this morning, be thinking about what do you need to put into that blank that may be challenging you right now. I want to start by having us use a a short text this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. And here's how it reads. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God so that no bitter root will grow up to cause trouble resulting in many being defiled. So notice there are several very important concepts that are tied together in this verse of Scripture. And it's teaching us something extremely important. First of all, when we miss grace, life becomes toxic. You see, a marriage will become toxic when grace is missing. And we're seeing that all across our land today as gracelessness has become a part of so many marriages. Religion becomes toxic when grace is missing. You can be very religious. You can have lots of rules and regulations in your life. But if you're missing the grace of God and the love of God, your religion is worthless. Paul said it's a zero. And so religion can become toxic without grace. Business relationships can become toxic without grace. And sometimes you may try to bring grace to that relationship, but the other person may not be willing to accept that grace or to return it. And so it can create toxicity in that relationship. So that's why we have to be careful about how we make partnerships in business as believers. Family, parent-child relationships, for example, can become toxic without, a, without grace being applied, and a lot of it because this can be a major area of toxicity in our lives. So, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we need to be aware that we need to be those who avoid the toxicity of bitterness by being sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Now, we live in toxic times. And according to the Scriptures... We have been informed and warned that even more challenging times are ahead of us. Jesus made this clear when he was speaking to his disciples and uh, sharing with them the Olivet Discourse. And you'll remember they, had, they thought that Jesus' first coming was his final coming. And they thought he was going to countermand the temple. And they had just come from the beautiful temple grounds. And they're all picking out their office thinking that, you know, we're going to be prime ministers. And, you know, everything's great. And they're just waiting for Jesus to make his move. And, and, and then they're pointing out these temple buildings to Jesus. And Jesus, as they're leaving the temple grounds, says to them, you see all these buildings? Not one of them will be left standing. They're all going to be torn down to the ground. There won't be one stone left on top of another. 
And they're like, what? Isn't this going to be our great headquarters? Isn't this going to be the messianic building from which you rule the world? And Jesus says, no, this one's going to be torn down. So they come to him asking him questions. They ask him two questions. What is this, what is this, uh, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Well, Jesus answered both those questions. You have to harmonize Matthew 24 and Luke 21 to get the whole answer. But nonetheless, Jesus warned them, the disciples, who were the seed of the church, that there were going to be difficult times at the end of the age. So obviously he was speaking to them as the seed of the church, but he's speaking to us who are actually living possibly at the end of the age. So he was talking to the church across the ages. And he was saying to them that there's going to be such terrible times that the world will never have seen times like that before and they will never see it again. It'll never be equaled. Now that's pretty shocking and pretty frightening, in fact, if you don't know that God's in control. Because it says that out ahead of us, possibly in these next four to five decades, that it's going to keep getting worse and worse. It it's already seems to be going that direction, but it's going to keep getting worse and worse. And as a result of that, there's going to be a very difficult time. Listen to the words of Jesus as he's talking about particularly the tribulation coming, and he talks about those who are in Judah, and he warns them about something. But notice what he goes on to say. It says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and then Matthew adds, those reading this should pay attention and understand. Jesus didn't say that. Matthew added that as a footnote. So if you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, that'll be in black because he didn't say that. That's just a insertion by Matthew saying, this is so important. Why? Because there were several abominations of desolation, but he's saying the one spoken of by Daniel in chapter 9, which happens in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, which begins the great tribulation of 42 months. And so he said, pay attention and understand. Then Jesus said, then when you see that happen, because the great tribulation is coming, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For there is going to be great distress at that time, greater distress than the world has ever experienced from the very beginning of creation, and it will never be equaled again. So do you hear what Jesus is saying? When that great tribulation comes, it's out ahead of us, it hasn't come yet, but when it does come, it's going to be a time worse than the world's ever seen before, and it's never going to be equaled again. Then he says this, in fact, unless this time of great calamity is cut short, not a single person would survive. You realize that we actually have the power today by pushing a few buttons to destroy the whole planet. That's what nuclear energy has given us. And if it's in the hands of madmen, that's exactly what they would do. And Jesus is saying there's going to be a lot of madmen in, mad in control at the end of the age, and if he didn't intervene, they would literally destroy everything. No one would survive. That's how bad it's going to be. But it will be shortened for the sake of the elect who belong to God. Now, some think that that's only referring to Israel. It could be referring to Israel there, but it actually refers to God's elect people, and that's the church. In fact, 17 times in Scripture, if you're reading uh, like the King James Version, you'll discover the word elect is used. 
you'll discover it's only used twice of Israel. It's only used twice of the Messiah. And the rest of the time, it is used of the church. So elect usually refers to the church. And so for the sake of the elect, God's people who believe in him and who have accepted his grace, that time is going to be shortened. If we and our children and our grandchildren are to endure such times and keep the faith and remain faithful to Jesus, it's going to take uh, great grace being operative in our lives. Now, remember last week in our study, we were reminded by the scriptures that as Christians, we will face some very trying times, as Jesus is saying here. And last week, we talked about what it means to be a grace pilgrim. And remember that we defined that, that a grace pilgrim is someone who's been on a hard pilgrimage, but they don't show the signs of their hardship like a lot of other people do because the grace of God is on them. They still are filled with joy. They are overcomers. And remember one of the prime examples we looked at was Joshua and Caleb. They had to take, because of everybody else's disobedience, they were on a harsh pilgrimage for 40 years. But when it was all said and done, everybody else was dead, they were still going strong. In fact, five years later, while they're still conquering Canaan, Caleb says, I'm 85 years old, and I can still, I'm still as strong and agile and can fight just as good as I could when Moses sent me into the promised land when I was 40. And he was sent because he was a great warrior then. And he goes and conquers a land that he asked Joshua to give to him that had giants because he was still looking to kill some giants that the Israelites had been afraid of. And so he was a grace pilgrim. And because of grace, he was an overcomer. We have to be grace pilgrims. But now we need to look at what does it mean to have grace in our lives because there is going to be some difficult times ahead of us. The Bible says that we're going to need patience, steadfast endurance. Remember that we learned last week, don't have time to reteach that, that that is a key concept that is stated over and over and over about a grace pilgrim, someone who remains faithful to God even in difficult times. They have steadfast, patient endurance. In fact, let me put up a passage of scripture we looked at last week, and let's just quickly remind ourselves about the difficult times that will happen at the end. It says, this is talking about the time of the mark of the beast and about end time. It says, all the people who belong to this world system worship the beast. They are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life, which belongs to the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So notice this distinction. All the people who belong to this world system, they're going to be worshiping the beast. And then he makes an exception. They're the ones whose names are not in the book of life. The ones whose names are in the book of life, they will not be worshiping the beast. They'll be refusing to do that. In fact, we see them later in Revelation because they come out of the great tribulation and they'll overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives so much to be afraid to die. They're the ones who overcome. They're the grace pilgrims. And so he, he talks about that. Anyone with ears to hear, they had better listen and understand. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. Who's he talking to? Well, look and see. This calls for patient, 
steadfast endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And I can promise you that's not Israel because they're unbelieving at this point. And it's not referring to people who missed the rapture because as we're going to see, he's going to say this again in the very next chapter and he's going to make it clear it's people who remain faithful, not people who just got converted. And so he goes on to say, there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patience, steadfast endurance on the part of the saints. Who are they? Those who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So these are not recent converts or rapture-missing people. And one of the greatest, greatest tragedies that's been done to the church is the teaching of a certain concept which the early church fathers would have condemned because I've read the early church fathers and none of them believed it. They believed that the great tribulation was something that the church would have to endure most of. And they all taught that. And that's what they said the apostles taught. And no one ever heard of a pre-tribulation rapture until about 1832. And I don't have time to go into where that came from, but it came from Glasgow, Scotland. But the point is, is that it's a, it's a novel idea. And it's kind of taken the church by storm. But it's really sad because it's causing people to believe that they're going to be raptured from their Cadillacs and their air conditioners and their electric blankets. And they're not going to have to face any bad times. Well, the Bible says otherwise. And it's talking to the saints who remain faithful to Jesus. And then notice this. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. And indeed, we discover that those dead they're talking about that die in the great tribulation Remember that they are pictured because Revelation is not sequential all the way through. Remember in chapter 7, there's a great white, there's a great throng of people in white robes before the throne. And John is asked, who are these people? And John says, I don't know, but you know. And he says, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the overcomers. That's the grace pilgrims. And so this is who they're talking about. That's why they're blessed. They're blessed because they have overcome. So it should be clear that we need to have an unfettered relationship with the Spirit of God's grace. If not, we and our children will not be able to have patience, steadfast endurance, and faithfulness. And we will not be able to remain faithful to Jesus. So, the first question we need to ask this morning is this. How can we be sure we will have the grace to stand when these times come? It's an important question. Well, you can be sure, but we're asking the question, how could you be sure? Well, there's, the answer is really pretty straightforward. Let's start first. The first thing you need to know is this. You need to be sure you are not missing any of the grace of, of God that is offered you for the issues and stresses of life which you are presently facing. You know, I hear a lot of people imagining how faithful they're going to be if the end time comes or if they had to give their life and they're hoping, oh, God to give me. Well, where does it really start? It starts by you being faithful and appropriating God's grace now. 
If right now you're not appropriating God's grace to overcome the circumstances you're facing now, what do you think is going to happen when it really gets bad? You're going to have an implosion. You're going to have a catastrophic meltdown. Because if you're falling short of God's grace and falling apart when things are somewhat rational and even agreeable, then you will not be able to handle an increase in life's pressures. So... It's kind of like the prophet Jeremiah points out to Israel when he was warning about coming judgment because of their disobedience to God. He said this to them. He said, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you run and compete with horses? How many of you would like to go to the Kentucky Derby and run with the horses? I don't think so. You're not going to get very far. You're going to get left in the dust. That all you're going to have is dust in your mouth. The point is, is that if, he says, if you've raced with human men and they've worn you out, what would happen if you had to compete with horses? Translation, if you cannot manage the ordinary, you're not going to succeed when life demands the extraordinary. However, God's grace, as we will see, is extraordinary. And it has been given to us so that we can, so to speak, if necessary, run and compete with horses. Because the grace of God is not an it, it's a someone. It's the Holy Spirit living in us. We don't deserve that. It's been given to us and we can overcome to the power of an infinite God. And we must not forget that. The second thing you must remember is you must engage the true nature of grace. You must engage the true nature of grace. Your faith should be confident in the sufficiency of God's grace for you. In other words, grace is greater than whatever. Paul said, I have great confidence in the grace of God. He said, I am convinced that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. He's able to keep me by his grace so here's something very important to remember the issue will never be the adequacy of God's grace that's never the issue rather the issue will be our obedient trust in God that puts us in a place to receive and be empowered by God's grace in other words really believing and obeying the gospel you see, if you don't think God's grace is greater than whatever you're facing, you don't believe the gospel. Because the gospel says that Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, sitting at the right hand of the Father, has all power and all authority in the universe, and everything is subject to him, and he's living inside of you, and he is the grace of God to you. Therefore, it's, he's greater than what? Everything. And if you believe the gospel, then you believe that grace is greater than anything. And that's important to believe. So it will never be the issue that about God's grace being inadequate. What will be the issue? Are you living in obedience so that God can give you that grace? You can miss the grace of God. You can fall short of the grace of God. That's why the warning of our text this morning is there. God's grace is greater than anything the world or spiritual powers of evil behind the world can throw at us. 
So we need to start now, right now, in the present, being true grace pilgrims by conquering the spiritual challenges that are already coming our way. In fact, let me just say this. Your present troubles and trials are good practice and training to develop some grace muscles. Do you know you need grace muscles? How many of you go to the gym? A few of you go to the gym. Man, we need to get new hope on treadmill here. Okay. <laughs> How many of you, go, any of you go to the gym? I know, I know some of you do because I see you there. I, I know you know, Steve was in the first service, but uh, anyway, there, there were a lot of you go to the gym. Of course, we have a lot of, of you that do other things. But the point is, is that you need grace muscle. That's a little different than physical muscle. But your trials and troubles are your spiritual gym, so to speak, where you can grow the grace muscles you will need for the coming battles. Now, as I pointed out at the beginning of this message, life becomes toxic when we miss the grace of God. So a good place to start is to grow some grace muscles. And that is to start facing the things that you now have to face and believe that God is bigger than what's the matter. Because if he isn't, then you don't have the right God. You got the wrong God. So let's ask ourselves some questions if we're going to really have grace in our lives and in our, through our lives. Because there's things that can hinder grace and cause us to miss grace. Let's ask this question. Do I have in my life attitudes or actions which God would consider to be a bitter root that is toxic to my spiritual life and the spiritual life of those around me? In other words, have I fallen short of God's grace? It's a very important question for us to ask. Let's look at our text again. See to it that no one misses or falls short of the grace of God. Now, it's interesting that in this particular case, this command is not... A lot of pastors take this command very seriously because we should. As overseers of the church, we're, we're responsible to God for our church in many ways, we have to be faithful to give you the truth, whether it's popular or not. But the point is, is that this is not a command to pastors. He is talking to the church as a body. And what he is saying is, as a church, see to it. Be accountable to one another. Live as a body of believers who are helping each other to constantly appropriate the grace of God. So, Take this to heart. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God because you don't want a bitter root to grow up. So let's look at what this passage is really saying to us. First of all, Hebrews 12, 15 is a command for believers to guard each other in the matter of holiness of life. We are all in this together. You know how we win? We win together. We need each other. And if you don't think you need other believers, that's just exactly where you're deluded by the devil. We need each other. You not only need God, you need each other. And when you think you don't need other believers, then you're really not properly connected to God. We need to be willing to be our brother or sister's keeper. And also be kept, held accountable by other brothers and sisters in Christ's body, the church. 
The covenant relationship, and that's what the church is. We are covenanted with Jesus Christ through the new covenant and with each other. The covenant relationship of God's people with Christ and each other needs to be more fully appreciated and appropriated. We are not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. We are not called to be Rambo Christians. We are called to be an interdependent army of love, divine love, and truth. And we can only be that army of divine love and truth if we are interdependent with each other and most of all with God. So, let's look back at the immediate context of this verse, verse Hebrews 12, 15, and let's look at verse 14 that precedes it, and you'll see what I mean about this being a matter of guarding each other in the matter of holiness of life. Look at this. Put great effort into living in peace with everyone and constantly seek to be what? Holy. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Wow, that's uh, pretty straightforward, isn't it? See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. And he goes right into our text. He's talking about the grace of God making it being important for us to truly be a holy people who can see the Lord. In this context, it's clear that falling short or missing the grace of God is intrinsically related to the issue of holiness. The word that is here translated to miss or to fall short of the grace of God, is who's testron? Who's testron? Tron, excuse me. Who's testron? And who's testron is a Greek word which means to be lacking in what is essential or what is necessary. So when it says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, it says be sure that nobody falls short of this necessary grace that they've got to have so they can have a holy life so they can see the Lord. Be sure they don't do that. And it's clear from this text that holiness is intrinsically related to our salvation. For those without it cannot see God. Now, yes, we are declared holy by the blood of Christ. Don't get me wrong. You cannot make yourself holy by works or by self-effort or by discipline or following a bunch of rules and a bunch of don'ts and a bunch of do's. That will not make you holy. That will just make you a critical prig. But... However, the scriptures also remind us that once you are made holy by the blood of Christ, that our holiness needs to be actualized by the constant work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that it is a present living reality. In other words, what God has put in you, you've got to work out daily. And that's why Paul says, you know, that you are to work out what God has put in you. And so... We need to realize that holiness is something we live. It's not just something that's, poof, bestowed on us. It is the blood of Christ that covers our sins, but then the Holy Spirit comes to live in us to make us to become like Jesus. Now, most of us, uh, most of us love this verse, Romans 8.28. How many of you could probably quote Romans 8.28? Most of you, yeah. For we know, what do we know? That God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now that's a wonderful verse of scripture, isn't it? <coughs> There's one problem that many people don't realize is that that's not the complete verse. 
In fact, in the Greek, there's not even a break in the sentence when you go on into verse 29. And what does it say when it goes on? That God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say everything's good. No, the cross wasn't good. It was horrible. But God worked it for good. Not everything in your life is good. But if you trust him, God can work it for your good and for the good of others. See, that's the great promise. That's how big and powerful grace is. It can take the worst thing and turn it into a great thing. Because grace is greater than, right? Grace is greater than a cross, and it turns it into an empty tomb. That's important. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, there's not even a break in the sentence. It goes on that he works all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, of course, we know from the Scriptures that those who love him are those who obey his commands. So if you love him, you want to please him. So you'll attempt to obey him with the help of his Holy Spirit. And then it says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now notice something. Those he foreknew. God sees all of time. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow, not because he's predestining it. He could, of course, but he's not necessarily. But because he's observing you do it because he can already see tomorrow. You can't. But he knows what you're going to do. And if he were to say that you're going to do something tomorrow, it w- you would do that because he's, his knowledge is accurate. But that doesn't mean he's predestined it. But the point is this, is that God, it says those he foreknew, those who would respond to his grace, those who would receive grace, because God gives prevenient grace to everyone because of the cross, so they can respond to the saving grace of God. But you don't have to say yes, you can say no. You can reject God's grace. You can miss God's grace. You can fall short of God's grace. But he gives prevenient grace. That means grace that goes before your salvation. And he's keeping everybody at a savable stage so they can respond to the saving grace of God. And so it says those he foreknew who would respond to him, he predestined. Oh, now predestination comes in. What is this? This is something that God has predetermined and you don't have any choice about it. If you are a born-again believer... You are predestined to sanctification. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't want to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Well, then you're not a true believer. Because all true believers love God. That's the the bare minimum. You don't love God, you're not a true believer. And if you love God, you want to please him. You want to obey his commands. And if you do that, he's going to lead you into heart purity. He's going to lead you into dying to self-sovereignty. He's going to lead you into making him the total Lord of your life. And he's going to daily conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. You are predestined to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's powerful. That's beautiful, because you should want to be like Jesus Christ. And that means that he wants to put his attitudes 
and he wants to put his actions in us, his attitudes. He wants to make us think like him, give us the mind of Christ. He wants to cause us to act like him by giving us the nature of Christ. And we are to seek to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. The next thing we need to realize, Hebrews 12, 15 is a call to keep bitterness out of believers and the church. You know why we need to keep bitterness out of believers in the church? The Bible tells us at the end of the age that there will be chaos among believers. It says many's love will grow cold because of the increase of wickedness. Your love grows cold, you're in trouble. And because of that, he says, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. There's going to be some division going on. What is it? It's going to be between those who are accepting the grace of God and have already have an attitude and a habit of submitting to God and accepting His grace and between those who have been resisting it and then they really find themselves overwhelmed. They have a meltdown and they become hostile and bitter. And so there's going to be some issues. But Hebrews 12 is saying, keep all that out of the church. Hold each other accountable. Love each other enough to confront each other in love and say, don't be like that. Now, grace is the only antidote for bitterness. Bitterness is a demonic weed that is destructive to spiritual life. It is the source of endless heartache and trouble. And that's why it says, see to it that it doesn't come up because it will cause trouble. Don't let any bitter root spring up. It will cause trouble. Bitterness is also evangelistic. Did you know that? I wish Christians were as evangelistic as the gospel as some bitter people are with their bitterness. That's right. Bitter people are very evangelistic. They try to get everybody to agree with them. They try to get everybody to side with them. They're very evangelistic. And that's why he says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to what? Defile many. Because bitter people go around trying to get everybody to embrace their bitterness, their anger, their whatever. And he says, don't let it in the church. Don't let it in your life. Guard each other. And so we need to remember that the grace of God is personal. So in the end, grace is the person of Jesus Christ given to you in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension by means of which he has given you the Holy Spirit that he got from the Father to live inside of you, to transform you, and to make you the kind of person who can overcome just like he has overcome. This is the amazing favor we do not deserve. But it is the favor we have received. The amazing grace of God, which is greater than anything. Now, we need to remember, though, that to have this grace personal living in and through us, we have to have a relationship of wholehearted trust and obedience to God. Remember, that's the key characteristic of a grace pilgrim. They have wholehearted trust. They don't doubt God. When giants come, they go, oh, God's bigger than the giants. 
Too many Christians see giants and go, oh no, oh no, I quit. No, God's bigger than the giants. Joshua and Caleb said, the giants, they're, they're no big deal. Look how big our God is. But the rest of them said, no, the giants are just too big. But we need to have this relationship of wholehearted trust and obedience to God. Then, and only then, does he come to live in us with all his wisdom and power and with all the power of his grace. In fact, the apostle John put it this way. He said, those who obey Jesus' commands live in him. Obey Jesus' command. Who does that? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So he's talking about the ones who love Jesus. And we obey his commands by his grace because we can't do it, our, do it by ourselves. So he gives us his grace so we can obey his commands. What happens? We live in him and he lives in us. That's wonderful. He comes to live in them. And we know that he lives within us because the spirit he gave us lives within us. He had said earlier in that same epistle, whoever claims to live in him, Jesus, must live their lives as Jesus did. In other words, you got to be conformed to him. He wants you to start having the mind of Christ. He wants you to start thinking like Christ, having the attitudes of Christ, responding like Christ, reacting like Christ. And you can only do that by having Christ in your life. Now, grace must be experienced to be comprehended in any meaningful way. So I want to finish this message by giving you a couple of biblical examples of people who experience the grace of God. Because you have to experience grace. And what we don't understand so often is that God gives prevenient grace, a grace which goes before your salvation, to everyone. So everyone's experienced some of God's grace, whether you realize it or not. And that is making you savable. And it enables you, if you will, if you'll accept it, to respond to his saving grace, and then he'll transform you and make you into a new creation. But he will not force you. He will not force you. But the only way you can really understand grace is to experience it. And so you need to respond to his saving grace so you can truly experience it. In Luke chapter 5, we have a beautiful example of this. Early in his ministry, Jesus has a man covered with leprosy come to him begging for help. Now, you need to understand how incredibly uh, horrible leprosy was in Jesus' day. First of all, there was no medical help for it, none whatsoever. And the second thing you must understand is that leprosy touched every aspect of your life. Not only physically did you start to deform, lose fingers, lose feet, your face deformed all, until you looked like some kind of freak. It, it, was, it was horrifying. But you were considered unclean for anyone to be around. So you could not live with your family. You could not hug your wife or your husband. You could not hug your children. You could not go anywhere near them. You could not go to a synagogue. You could not go to a party. You could not sit down and eat a meal with anyone. You could not go to the temple because they would kick you out or kill you if you tried to stay in there because you were unclean. It absolutely destroyed your life. This man evidently had had leprosy for quite some time because he says he was covered from head to foot with leprosy. 
And he comes to Jesus, and obviously at a distance, as the law commanded, and said, Lord, if you are willing, you could make me whole. Let's look at this scene. We're talking about grace personal. It needs to be experienced. I forgot about my slides. That's okay. While Jesus was in one of, the, one of the towns, a man came along who was covered, it means from head to foot, with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. He's begging, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, is that a declaration of faith? You bet it is. He says, it's just a matter of whether you're willing. If you're willing, you can make me clean. I know you have the power to do this. Notice what happens in this scene. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Everyone who was with him, his disciples, any crowds that were with him, when Jesus walked over and closed the gap between them and touched him, everyone sucked the air out of the atmosphere. It was like, you've got to be kidding. He, he, he touched him. You don't touch people like that. They're, they're unclean. And everybody just went into spasms. This, no, 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 Lord, you can't do that. And then after touching him, Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now I want you to notice something very important. This man has likely not been touched by another human being for many years. He's not been touched at all. He lives in total isolation and is forbidden to come near any other healthy person. We know that the absence of human touch has a deep impact on, human, on the human psyche and wounds and cripples a person's spirit. It is a basic need of life. Many years ago, the Soviet Union came up with this idea that the state was going to raise the babies. And they would take babies away from mothers and put them into little care centers. And they would just basically feed them. But they weren't getting any hugging. They weren't getting any touches. And it was just basically an automation system. And the babies just started dying right and left. And they discovered it was because the babies weren't being touched. It's a basic human need. And so this man has not been getting that. He's deeply wounded and crippled in his spirit. What this man's heart is crying for is not just healing. Oh, he's crying for that. But he wants something more. What he wants is to be healed so he can touch and be touched by other human beings. He wants to go home and hug his wife. He wants to go home and hug his kids. He wants to be able to go over to his friend and hug his friend and have dinner with him. He wants to be able to have a life again. He wants to be able to go to a party and be able to stay. He wants to be able to go to the synagogue and not be stoned and told to get away. He wants to be able to go to the temple and not be kicked out by the guards. He wants to have a life. But I want you to notice what Jesus did. Jesus did not need to touch him. At least just to heal him, he didn't need to. Physically, we've seen Jesus in the Bible. Many times he just healed with a word. In fact, sometimes the person he healed would be many miles away. A father comes many miles. In fact, it tells us he's a, he's a day's journey away. And he comes and says, Jesus, heal my son. He's about to die. And, and Jesus says, your, your son will live. Go. 
And when the father finds out from his servants, he said, when did he get healed? Well, it was this time yesterday. And he says, well, that's the exact time he said my son would live. So Jesus healed miles away. He just, with a word. He could have just said, you're clean. And that would have been it. But Jesus wanted to heal more than just his body. He wanted to heal the whole man. And the first thing he wanted to heal was his broken spirit. And he reaches out while he's still unclean, while he still stinks, while he's still got pus oozing from every orifice and every sore. He walks and closes the distance and puts his hand on him and says, I want you to know I care about you just like you are. I love you just like you are. There are some of you who are sick with the leprosy of sin who have been trying to get yourself all cleaned up for Jesus for years and it's never going to happen. It's impossible. It's foolish. You need to come just like you are. Remember what Paul said? While we were yet sinners, while we were still covered with the leprosy of our sin, Christ died for us. Wow. And Jesus reaches out while the man's still covered with his leprosy and says, I care about you. I really care about you. And I think at that moment, the man got healed on the inside. I think suddenly life surged back into him and it felt like it's going to be good again. And then Jesus said, and I am willing to heal your leprosy. Be healed, be whole. And instantly he had no leprosy. Wow. That's what God can do for your soul. Amen. Let's finish by talking about grace personal. You see, grace personal is Jesus meeting you where you are. That's what we were just talking about, right? You may not be where you want to be or you may not be what you want to be, but Jesus will meet you where you are just as you are. That's the important thing. Too many people are ignorant of the grace of God, so they minimize the grace of God. People fail to experience God's grace by hiding behind illusions of Satan's lies that make them think grace is not big enough for their situation. They'll say things like, well, God will not forgive me, not after what I've done. Well, what makes you so special? Who do you think you are? You're like the greatest sinner the world's ever seen? Get over yourself. Grace is greater than anything you've done if you'll give it to God. Don't come with this, I'm special. Now, it's just, just wounded pride talking. No, you just will not come. You're being stubborn. You need to give up that stubbornness. God will forgive you if you will ask. Because if you will confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some people say, well, God can't fix me after what they did to me. I'm too wounded and I'm too broken. No, you're not. Grace is greater than what they have done to you. He, it's greater than the abuse that you've experienced. The healing power of grace is greater than the destructive power of evil. Don't make evil greater than grace. It isn't. Because grace is the person of the Holy Spirit living in you that you don't deserve. Some people say, I'm too bitter. I will never be able to forgive and forget. 
No, God can give you a new heart, one that you never dreamed you could have. He can give you love for your former enemy. He can transform you. That's how great his grace is. Besides, let me just say this. He doesn't want you to forget. Some people say, well, the only way you're really forgiven is if you forget. No, 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 no. Yes, we, what we mean by that is forgive and forget means if you really forgive, you won't keep remembering it and bringing it up and throwing it in their face. But that means you're still hostile, bitter, and angry. But the Bible doesn't talk about forgetting what happened to you. It talks about remembering it in a new context. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you have time machine. You could go back to the moment that is hanging on the cross. I've used this illustration before, but it's important right here. You could go back to the moment when Jesus hanging on the cross. You interview all the disciples. That way, they run and, and they're hiding, except for John. He's only on the cross. They're all, they all run. They're hiding. And you interview them and ask them, "What do you think about the fact that Jesus is being crucified?" You know what they would say, don't you? They would have been moaning, crying, groaning, carrying on. The whole thing worse. Now get your time machine and go five years further. Then come back and review the apostles. You think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, the glory in the cross of Jesus. What? I thought the first thing happened. Oh, it is. Wait till we see what God did with it. What do they do? They receive the cross from the door of the tomb. There are some of you who are bitter about things and hanging on to things. Because all you see is your cross, and God wants you to see your cross to an empty tomb. Because He can work all things for good to those who love Him. And if you love Him, you'll give it to Him and let Him turn it into an empty tomb. And when you see your, your former crosses through an empty tomb, it'll change your life. That's what we need to understand so desperately. What you can't do, God can do. You say, I'm too addicted. I've tried over and over and I can't do it. Well, God can do it. Grace is greater than your addiction. Grace is greater than the labels and the diagnosis that you've been given and the labels that have been glued to you. I'm going <laughs> to close with one more story. Please be patient with me. She was guilty. There's no doubt about that. They'd caught her in the very act. And because they wanted to get rid of this peasant rabbi from Nazareth, which they were afraid he was claiming to be the Messiah, and they didn't want any peasant Messiah, they needed to find some way to get rid of him. So the religious leaders hatched a little plot. They had caught this woman in adultery, and she was guilty, and she probably barely had time to wrap a bed sheet or a blanket around her, and they're dragging her to the temple, and they throw her in front of this peasant rabbi from Nazareth because they want to trap him. And it's the perfect scheme. They think they've got him for sure. Because they're going to ask him a question. Here's what they're going to ask him. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says we should stone women like this. What do you say? 
Now, they knew that the Romans forbid the Jews to do capital punishment. So if Jesus said, stoner, they would go to the Romans and said, we, we have a guy preaching against Rome and saying you shouldn't obey the laws of Rome. And he said, oh, the Romans will take care of him. But then what if he said, oh, no, don't stoner. Then they would go to the Jewish, other Jewish leaders and to the people and say, this man preaches against the law of Moses. He's tearing down our laws. He's tearing down our religion. They thought, we got him. No, we got him on the horn of a dilemma. He'll have to answer us. And wh- whichever way he answers, we got him. Well, they throw her down. And they ask their question. So what do you say? They can hardly stand it. They can't wait till he answers. Because they think they're so clever. Jesus doesn't answer. He just kneels down and begins writing in the dirt. Now, there's been a lot of theological ink spilled over what they thought, what people think Jesus wrote. Nobody knows. If I had my iPhone and was there, I'd have taken a picture, and I could have solved the whole problem. But we don't know what he wrote. Some say, well, maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. If he did, it wasn't the first time he'd written them. His finger was the one writing him on the rocks with Moses on top of Mount Sinai, because he is Yahweh God. But maybe he was writing, some have suggested, suggested the sins of the men who were standing there. And maybe he's even putting their name out to the side. Let's see there, John. Yep, guilty of this, this, and this. If he was doing that, that'd make you a little uncomfortable, right? I don't know what he was writing. But they kept badgering him because he just kept writing and wasn't answering. And they kept saying, now we need, we need an answer from you. They, says, they pushed him, they pushed him. And finally, Jesus stood up, and he looks him in the eye. Then he looks down at the woman, and he says, okay, any one of you that is without sin, go ahead and, pack and throw the first stone at her. Oh. And then I think at that moment, Jesus sent out his Holy Spirit in convicting power on every one of those guys to remind them of all their sins. And it says he knelt down and began writing again. Maybe it was Tom guilty of this. I don't know what he was writing. And it says all of a sudden we started hearing strange sounds. It was a thud. It says from the oldest to the youngest, they suddenly started just dropping the rocks, thud, and going away. Can you imagine if you're that woman on the ground, probably not even daring to look up, you're hearing thud, thud, thud. Thud, thud, what's going on? Thud, they're just dropping the rocks. And Jesus is about to turn those thuds into a symphony of grace because that's what's going to happen. And finally, they've all disappeared into the crowd in the temple. And Jesus says to the woman, woman, Where are your accusers? Has no one accused you? Has no one condemned you? She looks up and looks around, can't believe her eyes. There's nobody there. There's only rocks on the ground. (laughs) She says, well, no one, sir. No one's condemned me. 
And there's a short pause, and Jesus said, well, then neither do I condemn you. And then he said, but go, leave your life of sin. She was guilty, and she needed to change, and she could change by the grace of God. But you see what Jesus did? Jesus, he created a symphony of thuds of grace that had triumphed over condemnation and judgment. When she heard those rocks falling, when she heard the thuds of those stones, Jesus was going to turn that into a beautiful sound. You see, she deserved judgment, but she got pardon. Instead of punishment, she received pardon. How you respond to grace now, either in accepting it or giving it, will greatly determine your future. We need to get properly aligned with God's grace. So let me ask you a question this morning. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to turn loose of your bitterness toward? What do you need to give to Jesus? What do you need to recognize that God's grace to you is greater than that issue? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your employment? Is it in some relationship with your kids or your parents? Or what is it? What is it that you need to recognize? God's grace is bigger than that. Because I got news for you. It is. In fact, this is always true. It's the, one of the greatest realities on the planet. Grace is greater than. And you can put whatever you want in that blank. Because grace is God giving himself to us. We don't deserve it, but he gives himself to us. And he's infinite and he's bigger than what's the matter. And so as we close this morning, I want us to have a closing prayer. Because we all need more of God's grace, don't we? Let's stand together. I want to give you an opportunity as I close with this prayer, if you'd like to, just to come forward here at the front and just stand. If you'd like to be a part of this and say, God, just give me more grace because we're living in difficult times, folks. And you may need more grace for whatever it is you're facing in your life. Just come on down and say, God, I want grace. I want grace, and I'm asking you for grace. I'm saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And he's going to reach out and touch you and say, I am willing. Be whole. That's the way our God operates. That's the kind of God we serve. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, life seems so full of chaos and toxicity. And yet you're bigger than all of that. And yet sometimes we've been guilty of acting like the giants of this world and the situations of this world are bigger than you. Forgive us, Father, and help us to truly be your children. Help us to be Joshua's and Caleb's who look at the giants and say, you're going down. Help us to be like a David who says, you're going down because my God is bigger than everything you can throw at me. And Lord, as we face difficult times, and we are facing them, and they do discourage us, remind us 
that we can have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, because we know that we have you on the inside. We have your spirit living in us and through us and your grace to us. You're empowering us. You're giving us the desire and the power to be what we ought to be and to do what we ought to do is bigger than what's the matter. And we're grateful. Thank you for this great church. And thank you for the people who walk in grace and give grace. And we pray for the generations that are coming after us, O Lord. We pray that we will raise up children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren who know you and love you and are willing to serve you no matter how big the challenge, no matter how big the giants, they'll know their God is bigger than all that's the matter. And we pray that it begins because they see it in our lives now as we face the issues that we face every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 God bless you.